Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening today and welcome to our monthly kibitz, which is open to all of our Team Human supporters who also get the ad-free Team Human team feed as well as invitations to our live in-person events. We have one coming up in October. I'll be announcing in the next week or so. And until the end of August, you can become a charter member of Team Human at the $2 a month level in perpetuity. After that, our entry level for all of our membership privileges will be $5 a month. Of course, as always, anyone can listen to Team Human for free. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to find the others, share strategies, forge solidarity, and dismantle the machines of mental, economic, physical, and spiritual oppression, even when they're of our own making, or not even real. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right, another conversation with the Team Human community recorded in the Team Human Kibitz Room. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Kibitz Room sessions have become really my favorite thing to do, particularly if I'm feeling low. There's nothing like a loving community of intrepid humans engaged in unconditionally supportive inquiry to lift one's spirits and remind them of the deep pleasure of being in this thing together. So here's our Kibitz Room conversation from August 1st, 2023. I hope it does even a little bit of what it did for me for you. If there's a theme for me this week, other than the sad passing of Paul Rubens, who was a, boy, a tactical media hero, if ever there was one, we can talk about uh, Paul Rubens and what, what he, they accomplished through kids' media. Uh, it's amazing. And I've also been thinking a lot about, partly because I just read the manuscript of Nora Bateson's book that comes out in fall. I've been thinking a lot about complexity and this urge we have, and I have so much of the time to solve problems. You know, if there's a challenge, it comes up, let's solve the problem rather than acknowledging the complexity of the challenge, that it's almost always a more, a bigger, more systemic thing at play. So it's like, you know, you get a stomach ache. Okay, I could take this pill and solve it. But there's actually a whole gut biome going on here that's bigger than me and has more information than every gene on my body combined is this thing that I'm 
I'm in service to really more than it's in service to me, this culture of bacteria that's speaking up, right? <laughs> As an issue. And its issue is going to be big. It's it's speaking up because of the way the food supply is working and not just not just what I'm eating, but what I'm even entitled or allowed to eat. So there's there's sort of these two different ways I've had kind of addressing problems. One, where my sort of window of confrontation is wide enough. I'm kind of calm enough to pull back and see, okay, this is a bigger thing and it's going to be dealt with in a slower, more team human-esque way, if you will, versus like, oh, this is a crisis and we're just going to slap a Band-Aid on it. You can slap a Band-Aid on it and do whatever you need to, but I'm always concerned not to slap the Band-Aid on in such a way that lets me uh, offload or not think about what the more complex causality is for what's going on and and actually address that. So that's really where I've been. It's like looking at how do I make more room to engage with the larger currents rather than being so committed to solving problems like that kind of whack-a-mole thing. Because both in the microcosm of my own life and the more macrocosm of world culture, that whack-a-mole thing is clearly uh, not going to work. Our engineering, our science, our intelligence is not good enough to solve problems one by one. We've got to kind of pull back and maybe adjust, adjust how we do stuff. So that's where I've, that's just where, so you know where my head is at. I have a feeling most of the, my responses and engagements are going to be a little bit in in thinking about things that way. But let's uh, welcome anybody or everybody. Just raise your hand as beautiful team human supporters. You all get to or have to, uh, hopefully want to (laughs) be here (laughs) with the team in this kibitz room. Yeah, Brenna, hey. Hey, how's it going? All right. How are you doing? Good. <laughs> the thing I'm bringing in is actually kind of a specific problem that I've been thinking about more generally, mm-hmm. which is that uh, I just got really mad last week because someone posted an angry YouTube comment. Huh. But I've been thinking about this line between being scientifically accurate and being interesting to like the layperson. Because <sighs> I used to do these little um, nature videos of arthropods in my yard. And I kind of just made them to have something to share with my friends, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I was kind of burned out creatively. So it was nice to just go out into my yard and find insects and kind of take a video and give a couple of fun facts. And um, it was also like nice because the next time my friends saw a bug somewhere, they'd text me a picture instead of, you know, smashing the bug. Hmm. But recently I've gotten a couple of angry messages from entomology enthusiasts because they'll tell me my video quality isn't good enough to tell what species the bug is, or they'll want to argue with me about how I didn't show all the identifying markers for that species. And I'm a certified California naturalist, but I'm not well-educated in the specifics of each species. And these are, you know, phone videos that have 24 views a piece. So they're not really, <laughs> you know, being used in any kind of college environment. Right. You're not creating a great public hazard. <laughs> Right, right. But it is interesting because I do think scientific accuracy is important. I just know that my audience is my friends who are actors and musicians and writers. And if I get technical, they'll lose interest. And I will too, frankly, because that's not really my wheelhouse. And if I had to do a research on kind of a level that satisfies all those people, then I would get bored and stop posting entirely. So I was just kind of contending with the idea of when is it okay to be more of a broad storyteller about that stuff and when is it necessary to get scientifically specific ah i mean well there's a there's a big difference between lacking the granularity that someone in the science community may wish you had and saying totally wrong things, right? So if you're showing a picture of a lantern bug and calling it a spider, I could see them getting pissed off because it's like, hey, yo, there's people looking at this. If you just say, hey, look at this arthropod, isn't it cool? And not know that it has an articulated beak or whatever. I don't know if they have beaks, probably not. See, now I just get in trouble. We're going to get that... that what are the ichthyologist entomologists are going to yell at me now? If it's a true bug, it has a probosteus. <laughs> that's 
<laughs> I know something. <laughs> yeah. No, the whole point is, I mean, my approach to that would always be the yes and to be like, oh, wow, you've got great knowledge. Do you want to post after I post a video? Would you be up into posting greater detail of what we can tell from what I've put up there? And if what you show if, and if what you learn by looking at the picture is that there's not enough that this angle doesn't show the information we need, then share that and say, by the way, when taking a picture of a bug like this, you want to get up and down to the left so you can see whether or not it has a separated columnus or a joined arachnophobe on it. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, cool. Thank you. It's hard. But seeing that this person actually has kind of positive bug energy and enthusiasm and trying to channel it toward what you're doing. But it's, of course, it's okay to, to go with broad strokes. It's, it's when people get in danger going in broad strokes is like when they start making arguments about the economy or fascism using a single example of like planaria from nature. Oh, the planaria eats its prey. Therefore, it's okay for our corporation to, you know, destroy Mexico. It's like, uh, <laughs> no, but Gosh, if you're trying to open people's appreciation, what if you just did pictures of flowers and all you know right now is the color of the thing? This is a blue one. That's a red one. Is there a crime in that? I don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, no. But yeah, but it's the yes and. It's hard to do, especially if they're actually assholes. But to yes and, to say, to enlist them in it and to say, oh, wow, there's a lot that I and the eight people looking at my pictures could learn from you. Would you be interested in each time I post something, posting a deeper explanation of what it is we're looking at? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see they'll probably disappear forever, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they're not going to get to do the thing they want to do, which is just criticize somebody. It's a good way to find out, though, yeah. which it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I saw the Grand Canyon when I was six years old. I had no idea what made it or what it was. I had a good old time looking in that big hole. Mm -hmm. What's so wrong with that? You know, it's that these are entrances, right? What you're giving people is gateways to awe. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I for sure had, I mean, the reason I'm interested in sex as an adult is as a kid, you know, I'm sure I got a ton of broad information, maybe some incorrect information, but I was still interested. So yeah, yeah. Throw me the eggs is just putting in the comments, you know, it gets the feeling that hyper specialists get protective, because their whole worth tends to come from their specialty. And they're mm -hmm. saying they've always been a generalist, which seems to be disliked within academic circles. And that I'm a generalist too, but I'm a rigorous generalist, right? You could be a generalist in order just to have soft focus and not dig, you know, drill down on anything. Or you could be mm -hmm. a kind of a rigorous generalist, which is, I'm guessing what throw me the eggs is too. How do we compare this system to that system? Some of us have to do that in a rigorous mm -hmm. way. But yeah, they have a lot at stake. And it's like they went to school or they're a PhD in bug legs and you know, and you're not even saying that the difference between this one and that one is this one's got sticky feet and that one doesn't. It's frustrating. But yeah, just give them the chance. I would give them a platform and see mm -hmm. what they do with it. Yeah. I'm going to come. Where can I see your bug pictures? Oh, they're all on my same YouTube channel. They're all my older videos. I have like, um, let's see. Yeah, my YouTube username is Brenna CC. I, all uh -huh. my music videos are on there and stuff too. Cool. So it's all kind of. Bugs and music. Together. That's good. So you can move yep. back and forth between bug appreciation and beautiful music. Yeah, I haven't really figured out a brand or anything, so and I don't plan to. So yeah. Oh well, <laughs> it's okay. We're in the post brand. You know, once you have a brand, you could be labeled and targeted and killed. You know, I don't mean dead mm -hmm. killed, but once you name what you're doing, it's kind of over, right? If once you can name it, it's time yeah. to move on. <laughs> For sure. Well, cool. Well, thanks for that. It's something I, I think about too. I mean, I, I wrote a little bit with two broad strokes maybe early on in the very early cyber rave era, but that was a broad stroked mm -hmm. era, right? <laughs> so it yeah. was kind of appropriate to the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. I'll think about that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So this is something that has been on my mind recently, but what you just said sort of re-triggered it. So I'm going to get you in trouble. This is a great chance for good trouble. All right. You said, you know, when people get in trouble when they speak in broad strokes about how the economy works or fascism. Mm -hmm. And I've been dwelling on this idea that as much as we talk about fascism and capitalism, we have almost no good shared definition of those words. And I have been trying to arrive at good, useful, like 15 words or less definitions of these terms so that when I'm in a conversation with somebody... I can sort of check the conversation. I can say like, well, hold on before we go any further. Are we both talking about the same thing when we mm. use this word? And I found it's really productive to even just sort of raise that question and kind of like check in with people when they say capitalism, if they mean like, do they mean greed? Do they mean markets? Do they mean money? Like, what do they mean right. by that? word? And I wondered if you had good go-to definitions? Because I think I have some that I'm working with right now, but they're still fresh and they're borrowed and they are open to changing in time. Just wondered if you had like good go-tos for capitalism and fascism. Yeah. I mean, capitalism is easier because I spent a whole bunch of time figuring out how I defined it when I wrote Life Inc. in whenever that was, 2006. So, you know, I look at capitalism as really a political an economic system that is biased toward the investor or the financialization of something. So the capitalism is the idea that the person who makes the most money is the one who puts up the cash for an enterprise, not the labor, not the land, not the community, but the capitalist, the venture capitalist, the, the one who puts the money in. And what we saw, you know, as capitalism developed from the late Middle Ages to now is the it started with just one law, you know, with chartered monopolies giving uh, and central currencies, really two laws. And it ended up we reconfigured the whole economy around those who make money off our transactions and buying and selling rather than the people who are creating the value. So I looked at capitalism that way, which is kind of, I guess, the, the Marxist way of understanding it. For me, fascism was always fairly specific for me. When I say fascism, I mean like Mussolini fascism, you know, which is a, a kind of a specific relationship of the state to business and a style of rhetoric that goes along with that kind of unification of government and business. You know, today, people are using fascism to mean kind of racist authoritarianism, which I'm usually specific about that. I used the word fascism when I was talking about fascists exploiting metaphors, because that's really what I did mean, was the way fascists exploited metaphors from nature in order to make certain kinds of points. So it was a really a specific danger from Mussolini and, and Hitler, you know, that I was talking about, and maybe a little bit from some of the new right in Italy, some of that party uses that fascist style rhetoric. I'm interested to hear what, what have you been working on as your way of defining these things? For capitalism, it's pretty much the same. It's this idea that like, you know, in 1602, when the Dutch East India Company gets formed, you have a private enterprise, which is able to externalize its debt to a public market. It's essentially mm. able to sell its current debt in exchange for future inflows. And that is, I think, probably about as simple of a definition as I can get. Public access to private debt markets. Yeah. For fascism... I'm familiar with the Mussolini-style definition of this sort of cooperation between business and the state. 
I struggle with that because I think that fascism is probably still possible within non-capitalist systems <laughs> in a way. It's yeah. this like appeal to strength and brutality to just get people to do what you want. And so I borrowed this. This is not mine. And I wish I could remember who I heard it from. But I have been saying that a fascist is someone who is willing to make things worse in order to make them better when the rest of us are just trying to make things better. A fascist is someone who's willing to push society through some sort of trial that this person perceives society deserves. And that to me is fascism. It's this idea that like things must be accelerated towards some breaking point in order to birth some sort of messianic better day on the other side. So really fascism is to me this kind of like grotesque utopianism that is willing to fall back on the police and militarism in order to achieve some better in air quotes. It's interesting. I mean, I always see that ends justifies the means approach. I mean, I see it in lots of different kinds of groups. I've known, you know, revolutionary communists who believe there's an ends justifies the means struggle that we have to go through in order to promote the liberation. Blood will be spilled. You know, yes, children will die. You know, people will starve, but then we'll get there. I've heard, you know, over history, Christians talk like that. I mean, people have talked like that who would not see themselves as fascist. I mean, even, I mean, what is it when, when, uh, uh, maybe it is in your definition when a doctor says, you know, we're going to have to do a very dangerous public health strategy. People will die, but we're going to do all this or any time that there's going to be a, a sacrifice. I'm suspicious of almost any ends justifies the means <laughs> mission. Uh, the, I, I'm always suspicious of them because I'm like, wait a minute. It's because the means right now, the means are the ends. But it's interesting. It's possible that that willingness to put people through the ringer is a feature, maybe a necessary feature of the fascist drive, but it may not be the whole one, if only because so many others are willing. You know, well, two thirds of humanity is going to go to hell, but that's just because, you know, that's the way our you know, religion works. It's always a little bit, I don't know. I'm always, <laughs> I see that, I see that quality around a lot, but for capitalism, I, I point to the same moments, you know, there's, there's two or three of them, but the beginning of the British East India trading company and the, the willingness to externalize, to externalize harm onto people and places in the name of capital, which is another ends justifies the means approach is a nice way of of defining capitalism. But yeah, I do agree that certainly right now people are throwing around these terms a lot, you know, and they sort of mean when they say fascism, they kind of mean the Trump side. And when they say totalitarianism, they mean some kind of uh, overly enforced Green New Deal, some sort of communist Chinese AOC that they're afraid of. And nobody's really defining their terms. And in many cases, people are afraid of the very same things, just with different faces on them. But yeah, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, words are hard, but <laughs> it's why. I think the most value is in like pausing the conversation and just checking in with the other person. Yeah. To see if you're even close to each other. <laughs> yeah, because of the nouns. Exactly. It goes back to Korzybski and nouns and names. Once you're naming something, you've reduced it. You've kind of extracted it from the system of which it's a part. You know, I'm way more interested in kind of verbs than the names because that just gives us something else to disagree about. And the thing is never contained in its name. Fascism's not a thing, right? Fascism's a component of a system. You need a lot of different moving parts for that to happen. I'm checking all nouns these days. I'm trying to do that Korzybski thing where you, you use E prime or whatever that language is. It's again from Robert Anton Wilson, who we talked about this week. You don't say this is that. This is not money. You don't use the is or to be because once you're doing that, you're reducing things down to nouns rather than uh, engaging with them fully. But cool. Let's keep things flowing as long as we're being systemic. I see... Uh, it's a long time. Speaking of Robert Anton Wilson, Bobby does a lot of the uh, illustrations for Hilaritus, which is uh, Robert Anton Wilson's daughter's publishing house that does all the new uh, the new editions of his many books. I've been trying to keep up. It's kind of hard. But hey, Bobby, it's great 
And Bobby did the original Team Human portraits that are still some of them up on the site and the deck of cards. We had Team Human playing cards that we were giving as a premium in the early days. It's great to see you here. Uh, yeah, great to see you, Doug. Hey, Josh. Uh, it's great to be uh, you know with Team Human right now. Mm. Oh, and, and just to throw in something about the E-Prime thing mm-hmm. as for people to try out, because it, in my experience, it works every time. If you ever find yourself disagreeing with someone on the internet, which I'm, I'm sure doesn't happen to most of us, <laughs> if you reply using E-Prime, it doesn't escalate. The argument doesn't escalate because it, it prevents you from like overstating your case in a way that makes the other person more inflamed. Mm. Uh, it really is an interesting thing. It just like, I've seen, like, I've been able to stop dead in its tracks, huge disagreements, and then it just kind of evens out. So It's interesting. It's also really useful in, not that I'm a psychotherapist, but if you're talking to a friend who's got like big distortions. It's like, oh, something happened with someone and their kid. And they go, oh, I am a bad mother. You know, oh, the problem is that it's right out of, and there was this guy, Albert Ellis, who did this kind of therapy called like a rational, emotional integration, whatever it was called. But it was a, it was basically the precursor to, to cognitive therapy. And it's just, if you take the is, so, you know, I am not a terrible mother. Okay. You feel like a terrible mother right now. Even just changing that much, it's like, oh, right, I feel that. Why do you feel that way? You feel that way because you're a great mother and you, you know, you made a mistake. You know, it's it's very different. So it's it's but you can't say you're a great mother. It's just as bad, I guess. (laughs) But um, but you know what I mean. It works for a lot of different things. So you're right. So yeah, so there's something I had a an odd experience with that documentary, uh, the social dilemma. And I thought it was isolated to just like me being weird. But I've noticed you like throughout last couple of months in episodes, it kind of pops up a lot in terms of you like just adding a little comment of disagreement towards their way of doing business. And uh, I just kind of wanted to share my experience with it and then see if like you could reflect back maybe because I didn't really understand why I felt the way I felt. Mm. And so maybe just to like help process what I was feeling. So I teach uh, 7th to 12th grade a creative tech class. Hmm. And the social dilemma was being marketed very aggressively in my uh, school email as something that I should teach my students. And like when I first watched it, it's like it's got high production values. It's talking about something I want to talk about it seemed like a home run, like finally a resource made for my weird little class that doesn't really have a curriculum or a pre-established tradition of discourse, right? So I'm like, oh, this is great. And I go through the whole thing. I'm on Google Classroom. I'm making two weeks worth of lesson plans all built around the social dilemma. And I'm getting ready to hit the button that sends it out to all 500 of my students. And I get a sick feeling in my stomach and I can't press the button. I can't send this out to them. Mm. And all these little red flags started popping up on it, which I don't know necessarily because I don't think they're nefarious or you know intentionally putting out a bad message. But it felt bad. It felt almost like those those like anti smoking ads that the tobacco industry would fund, where it's like, yeah, they're right, but the way they're messaging it almost creates the opposite. Uh, impression on the people hearing it like you'd almost rather smoke than be on the side of this commercial yeah and so like again not that it's intentional i I don't think anything like that but also like 80 percent of my students are in poverty (sighs) and i felt like what i was telling them was you know that like the most powerful recourse you have to agency it's bad and a moral failing for you to use it and like i put myself in a position of if when i was their age If someone had told me, like, don't get good at computers and media, you know, that thing that in 20 years is going to buy you a house, it's Mm. bad and don't do it. And also, obviously, sort of like as you've been talking about how you change mindsets and registers, you never want to tell anyone what anything is. You just want to provide resources that they can use. And I felt like probably this was more of a smack in someone's hand and telling them no, which was counterproductive 
uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so we ended up just doing like a survey, one of those interactive surveys. And all the kids already knew all the stuff, that all the legitimate points that the social dilemma was going to bring up. It seemed like they already knew. They already knew that there was addictive qualities and inflammatory uh, biases and all that sort of stuff. They seem to inherently know it because they use it. But yeah, but I so I know that I feel like for me anyway, the social dilemma manner of talking about these things with students isn't the way to go about it. But like, how do you feel like how do you talk to students about these technologies that are kind of intertwined as like useful tools, but also dangerous entanglements? Uh, I mean, there's, there's sort of two issues here. One is that is that movie. I mean, and I've probably already spoken too much about it. I mean, I think the thing that makes it creepy is its implicit model of humans. The people speaking in it were true tech bros, right? They're the people who are confessing now about their magnificent skills at manipulating people through media and technology. So they feel like they could do all this awful stuff to us and that human beings are as programmable as a computer. You know, they all took BJ Fogg's courses in captology and used it to manipulate people the way that a slot machine manipulates people or the way that behavioral finance tricks are used by credit cards to manipulate people. And they are of the strong belief that they are like almost magical techno gods capable of programming humanity with these platforms and with these tools and look at how bad it could get. And again, it's a little bit of that, hold me back, hold me back. You know, like right, a, right. the guy in the street that doesn't really want to fight, right? Yeah. And their cure, if you look at their other work then, is, oh, so we've got to upgrade humanity to be able to deal with this. So if the computers are upgraded, now we're going to upgrade humans and reprogram them. And it just had a... I don't think it had ultimately, even though they took Team Human for their first organization, they were calling it Team Humanity. They asked for permission, but that's <laughs> a whole weird thing. But that was their <laughs> their idea, but it wasn't that. And they're still, most of them invested in one way or another in the same companies that they're complaining about. So there was a, a creep factor to it. That said, it did still expose a lot of people to the kinds of manipulation that are going on that they didn't know about and an accessible way by sort of showing, you know, personifying the algorithms and showing the way a social media or online algorithm keeps trying different things to trigger you or to get you glued to some sensationalist piece of media. Kind of how that how those algorithms work is interesting to see it laid out like that. I thought that was creative. But the ultimate message of it was, and I understand what you mean, it was a little bit like those kind of parental hand-wringing PBS documentaries of the 80s and 90s. Does television kill? Will TV make your child violent? Will fantasy role-playing games turn them into Satanists? You know, it had, it brings that up only because it really doesn't engage with the idea that human beings are thinking, living <laughs> beings that were not just iron filings moving around. So it was like the movie's approach to the viewer somehow echoed what it was saying about social media's approach to its users. It's like, okay, let's use television tools to manipulate people into feeling scared of social media tools, which are actually worse. And it's like, wait a minute. No, ne neither. So you're going to use a disempowering medium and storytelling modality to empower people? It's like, ah, I'm not sure, you know? <laughs> so it kind of felt inconsistent in that way and, and, or, or at odds with itself in that way. I guess I had kind of forgotten that it was, it was made by the people who had implemented these systems to begin with, and that they would probably have an inflated sense of how these things were working, like how every rich person thinks they're smart and not necessarily also lucky. Right. That all makes sense to me. I appreciate you running through. I'm sorry. Like, I forget that you actually like know these people and like that it might put you in a weird spot to like be asked to criticize them. So, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for uh, unpacking my 
the knot in my stomach I got from this thing. Yeah, no, I hear you. I was, I'm there too. Who do we have? We got Jeff. Jeff just came up. Hello. Hey. Hey, I kind of wanted to build on a theme that I think I identified in a couple of the people who've been up, which is this like ends justify the means and the apocalypse is coming and we've got to like redirect society, I guess. Like this was a big theme in Survival of the Richest too. <laughs> the metaphor that you use that I love is the male orgasm curve where there's mm-hmm. like build and then the tension gets too much and then there's a release and then we like come out of it. And I think that like a lot of utopian movements ascribe to that curve, like tech billionaires who are using their, or even just like tech workers who have this mentality of building up toward a sort of like techno solutionism, I guess. The direction I want to take it in, though, is kind of a weird one. I don't know if you've been following all of the alien stuff that's been going on in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So really weird things have been going around the Internet about like alien religions and, you know, fun stuff like that. And I think it would be kind of fun to have like a discordian outlook toward it where you're not necessarily taking it super seriously and becoming totally credulous and bought in and culty but entertaining it for the fun of entertaining it. And and I was wondering, I guess, to like narrow it down to a question, do you kind of see the whole like aliens as the second coming being just another manifestation of this same linear story arc? I don't know. It's so hard to tell what goes on, where and why. It's always nice to be able to use kind of you know, the cultural subconscious as the uh, driving force of, you know, what's happening. So you could say, oh, well, there's, you know, you could say that climate change is bringing on more and more of a need for people to think about end of times and Mm. that aliens and all could be, you know, our dimensional leap to something else. And that's why people are thinking more about it now or could be, you know, who knows? The military has been working on hypersonic blah, blah, drone something. And, you know, too much evidence of that is getting out. So they're going to distract us for a while with this (laughs) UFO stuff. I mean, I still don't know what they're, it always ends up being some guy who knows a guy, you know, and they told me this is where it would be. You know, it's very rarely, it's like, oh, I'm the one who spoke to these aliens. And I understand the ideas that they get all the way here, you know, through all the meteor storms and interdimensional solar, whatever. And then somehow once they're in our atmosphere, they were not expecting wind and then suddenly crash. It just seems also a little like, I don't know, or there are just so many of them that they occasionally crash. They just bang into something. And my own understanding of the obvious aliens seems so much more likely to be weird little interdimensional things that come to us in our Mm -hmm. dreams or at the bacterial level or at some giant cosmic level that the idea of things about our scale getting in graphite or metal crafts and propelling themselves across space seems just so, uh, I don't know. But um, (laughs) I don't know exactly, you know, what to make of it. I'm not finding myself particularly distracted by it. I peek and then I don't see anything quite compelling enough to draw me in. And I don't know. I just don't know what is the real source or impetus for this latest wave of these kinds of stories. They usually happen, you know, with something. If we're going to play cultural subconscious, it could be the AI thing bringing it up again, you know, whether it was Sputnik that first did or nuclear energy that then did, or it could be every time there's a big, seemingly existential technological wave that this happens. But I don't know. I'm just kind of watching and I don't quite get that same X-Files buzz off it that I did, you know, in the 80s. Mm. It's interesting. Another thing that's been coming up on the Team Human show a lot is that conspiracy theories used to be fun. 
And the, the, <laughs> I guess the like the Q crowd is kind of like stolen that from. I don't necessarily want to say our side of the spectrum because that feels very us and them. But I will say that, you know, seeing like, I guess, you know, top men (laughs) from the Pentagon going in front of Congress and talking about things that were like, you know, spooky molders territory in the past and like, you know, things that only the kooks in the center of the country were, you know, getting abducted and having their cows flipped inside out and their crops turned into circles and, you know, like just only the kookiest of people uh, seem to have been captured by it, but it has really ignited for me. And I think maybe a couple other people on the team human discord, Uh just a, a renewed sense of like, it's fun to wonder about how crazy things might be. And like, you know, those dopamine hits of connecting you know there's a little bit of weird data over here and a little bit of and i've got my ideas and you've got your ideas and here's how they come together and fit so it's Mm. been at least a little bit of fun in terms of i guess that's entertainment value yeah i mean and i guess we'll see we'll see whether this one materializes into something if someone (laughs) wanted me on a podcast to talk about this the aup whatever they're called now and i was like you know i just don't know enough about it. I was even on Connor Habib's with a a woman who was a a researcher in it. And it just wasn't for me right now, for some reason, it wasn't sparking kind of new archetype. I don't know. It wasn't triggering any kind of cool Jungian, you know, thought journey for me. And maybe just because I've gotten so terrestrial, you know, I feel Mm -hmm. like there's so many distractions for us from our essential status as earthlings, you know, and we're forgetting that we're earthlings. I mean, maybe UFOs could help us realize, oh, this is where we're from rather than, you know, oh, let's get off this place. You know, we are earthlings. We are native. We are, you know, all in one way or another, we're all indigenous to physical reality, right? <laughs> to this. And I feel like if we could leave some of our abstractions, you know, back to language and words and nouns, if we could leave some of our abstractions, you know, behind or in the background or let them focus less on them, we can start looking at each other and and the moment that we're in. But I get it. People like, it's fun. Any excuse to look at stars is good, but I'm trying to, I guess, help people, you know, get their feet back on the ground you know, which seems so essential now. I get slightly suspicious of almost anything that's pulling people away from what's going on right now. Who needs something in your town, on your block right now? And how to address that. It's interesting. Yeah. At its best, the alien phenomenon does does encourage that. But I get what you mean. Let's keep it team human, not team you know, yeah, unless it does, unless it reminds us. I mean, there's nothing that will make Team Human come together faster than Team something else. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll see. All right, thanks. All right, sure. Hey, Kathleen, thanks for being on Team Human. Hi, Douglas. Hey, hey Team Human folks. I've been listening for a while. It's the first time I've able been able to show up for one of these live. And oh, uh, someone earlier was talking about capitalism as selling debt from public access to private markets. Mm. And it got me thinking, I I do a lot of work in the community capital space. So what most people would probably know better is crowdfunding. And one of the struggles that people who really care about crowdfunding and it's, you know, fundamental, like what's underneath it, the heart of it is that it's become so financialized, Mm. right? So now that you can, you know, invest in securities and it's regulated by the SEC, you know, it's becoming transactional. And what I was curious about your take on is there are people who care and who see it more as shared risk and shared reward. So by allowing everyday people to invest in businesses, then they share the risk of starting businesses and then they'll share the rewards if there are rewards. But we end up preaching to the choir, right? So it's the same eight people And some of it is because there's a lack of financial understanding of what some of things are. It's, you know, frankly, scary to a lot of people. 
but I'm interested in it. You've talked a lot about the community level, right? Where you have agency. And so I just wanted to see if you have any thoughts for bringing that community to something that is maybe a little intimidating, but has a transformational potential. Like the intimidating things being kind of what? Uh, well, I mean, what's the security? How does this investment thing work? You know, I work in a lot of communities that are Black communities, under-resourced communities, Latino, Hispanic communities. And this is all brand new. There isn't a lot of personal financial literacy. Mm. And so you have this tension between, you know, businesses who aren't getting funded by traditional funders and capital using these tools and trying to go to their community. But there's this, there isn't a lot of understanding. And then even well-meaning people who, you know, have some, we'll say, grasp of investing, you know, they hear the word crowdfunding and they run for the hills because, you know, this can't possibly be anything legitimate. So it's like the same 12 people in an echo chamber right. trying to convince each other. And so if those 12 people only have limited resources. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I Lee, look back at a book like Collective Courage, Jessica Gordon Nemhard's book on uh, Black cooperative economics, you know, in America since the 1700s or whatever. And, you know, looking at how enslaved people came together and then people on plantations. And, and it was what, you know, what led to the thriving black community near Tulsa that got attacked. But they were using very simple methods. So they weren't calling them crowdfundings and this and that, but, you know, funeral fund or food bank or, uh, you know, these sort of mutual aid societies that they built you know, I'm wondering if there's clues in there and the kind of language that they used, or it's hard if a well-meaning white progressive cooperative economics experts goes into a neighborhood. It's very hard to not be seen as or engaged with as the sort of outsider trying to bring something to. There's going to be suspicion rather than it emerging from the community. You know what I mean? It's tricky. Oh, it's definitely, it's tricky for my, you know, the people I work with who are Black founders who are going out to their community. Right. But the struggle, it's like a Venn diagram, right? You have personal financial literacy and stability, and then business financial literacy and stability, and then community financial literacy and stability. And, you know, we have a lot of people sort of picking a point to enter. And I totally agree with you about the, I call it, you know, the, the coming in on the literal white horse to save mm -hmm. communities. <laughs> but it's a, even the communities of, we'll say, just for, to call it what it is, you know, white entrepreneurs, there just isn't a lot of understanding of the risk that business owners are taking. And I, I don't know if it comes out of sort of the startup media frenzy where like someone else will take that risk. I don't need to you know, invest in a business in my community, right? Everyone's like, buy local, but they don't invest local. So like, how do we get to the heart and say, you know, this business creates jobs in your community. They're not going to run away millionaires like you see, you know, people see Shark Tank, right? That's their idea of startups or yeah. you know, founders. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't have an answer. I'm just sort of throwing it out. Love to hear in the chat if any other, you know, folks on Team Human have ideas, uh, you know, it's a big thing, but I guess I, I love your start in your community, right? Start from the ground and we've seen some really good stuff, but it's this competition for also for media airtime with the multi-million dollar, you know, offerings. Yeah. And then someone who's raised $50,000, you know, offering debt to their community, that's not getting the airtime. So I don't know exactly, you know, not looking for a solution. Right. Well, we're never going to compete effectively in the airtime. Where we compete effectively is on the ground. For a while, I was going to credit unions and credit meetings of credit unions, like their conferences, trying to argue that they need to be the centers for educating communities on financial and economic liberty. What does that look like? How does that work? What is a decentralized economy like? How do you restore a local economy? How do you do circular economics? 
And um, most of them were afraid to take that on because they still just see themselves as banks, which was really, I mean, a couple don't. But um, one thing to do is to try to enlist a credit union or do things very locally. We're having a meeting, a live meeting, you know, start having after meetings after school board or local community boards. When you get people in the same room in the same house, we've got to do something, save our town, save our local economy, and they show up it ends up being much louder and more impactful than, you know, whatever they're seeing on paid media. But it's again, it's hard. It's hard to get people, especially after COVID, get them out of their house into a space. But that seems to be the local community has the home field advantage of the real world. You know, and the more we can activate people there, I think the better off we are. It's just hard. You know, it takes you go to the whatever, the farmer's market, the whatever they may have and start there. Just somehow it it seems to engender more trust when they see uh, other people there rather than some text that they're supposed to read or a video they're supposed to watch. Yeah, I really love that sort of tagging on to when people have already gathered. That's a great idea. Thanks, Douglas. Oh, sure. Anytime. Thanks for what you're doing or trying to do. It's the work, you know, that's the work. I'm left with this, this sense after a bunch of these questions that in some ways one of our collective problems is our approach to change or to making things better. We tend to feel obligated to have a strategy or a way or some thing. And I've been wondering if maybe that's that's our whole problem. I mean, does nature have an objective? Does nature have a strategy? Or is nature just kind of figuring things out, you know, lots of creatures moving around and wriggling and, <laughs> you know, and, and if anything, nature's objective is just to kind of sustain itself, to keep the fun going, to speculate. And I wonder if that less directed approach, is it this, the seeds of our disaster or is it the way out of this mess? In other words, this this not just letting things be or going passive necessarily, but being a little bit less objective or ob- object-oriented, directed, uh, goal-oriented. I mean, because uh, it certainly leads to the ends justifies the means stuff, but it also leads to when you have your eyes on the prize, you don't see what's going on around you right now. Now, there's this there's this way in which people look at problems as this kind of quagmire from which we have to extricate ourselves. And I guess I'm wondering, what if it isn't? What if it isn't? What if it's a soup that we have to learn to swim and play in? And what does that change in orientation do uh, to the way in which we engage when we engage together? Um, So we'll see. I'm obviously rethinking things. Chip, I guess you'll be last as we start to come up on the at the end of the hour here. Hey, welcome to Team Human. I really like you talking about slowing the register, and I, I don't late to the salon today, but actually, only my first time speaking at the salon. But I'm working. I'm kind of riffing off of Kathleen and and maybe Bobby before a little bit. But my question kind of is, how might how might creatives help in amplifying demand for sharing the needs in the community? And where I'm coming from is that I live in Vermont and I'm a guardian ad litem, which means that I advocate for children in the children and family custody that's their, in their best interests. And then that spawns into what the need for foster parents for children that are in custody. And I, I think that's a, a nationwide issue. So I'm really looking to how we amplify that communication to our neighbors and whatnot of how they can support and help the community grow and be healthy in this. What I think you, what I take away from your conversations around what the register we live in now, which is kind of in the yin and yang thing, we're on the curve, which is accelerating at a huge rate, like way over exponential <laughs> orders of magnitude that we are developing and growing and amplifying everything that is just in our own individual reality. So so back to Bobby's thing about the aliens, like people can live in their own reality. But thank you for any input you have. Sure. Well, first, Chip, the work you're doing is uh, obviously is incredible. And the work itself, 
I feel like the work itself is what matters the most. In terms of communicating, I wonder, artists and, uh, I mean, telling the stories, the stories of things that you're doing is valuable enough in itself, right? Just having people tell the, the success stories of this work and the satisfaction and the connection, what people are getting from it. I used to get you know, called back in the 90s, you know, in early 2000s, called by companies looking for communication strategies and all. And none of the communications people had any idea what the companies were actually doing. And it was like, some of you are doing good things. In other words, they're so used to the idea of hiding what they're doing and coming up with a brand story to cover it up that it's like, well, wait a minute, what about finding the stuff that your company's doing that you're proud of and amplifying that and and amplifying it both to the company and to the world? So, I mean, the work that you're doing and that you're witnessing is itself probably a more compelling story than pretty much anything anyone else can come up with. What I'm looking at in my own work now, which I guess could be considered, you know, tactical media and media arts and theater arts, you know, sort of all directed toward social, I don't know what to call it, uh, social justice, social change, global improvement and all. What I'm trying to do now, the shift for me is thinking about how to make how to elicit art and community uh, art and stories from a community rather than making them for a community. So it started out, I was thinking, well, you know, I don't want to make a, write a play that plays at Lincoln center for rich people. I want to do theater in the community. And then I realized, well, taking my theater, my Brecht play to a community and doing it for them is nice. But it's like, what about getting a Brecht play from the community? And then what about not a Brecht play at all, but what about what is the theater that this community would make if given different kinds of tools for storytelling? So it's less about here's a play with a great or a piece of art with a vision for the future that we can strive towards and rather just what's going on here? What's you know, what do you want to express through this modality? And rather than being so judgmental, I could rather just bring the tools of theater making to communities and see what they do. So I'm feeling really very much about the arts that way, that those of us who may have considered ourselves artists and writers now get our egos out of the way and turn to the communities that we mean to support. And we support them not with our stories, but we support them by letting them tell theirs in whatever modalities and with whatever story structure um, may be most appropriate to them. So that's kind of where, I don't know, that's where your your question kind of takes me. Um, and it's back to that. It's back to embracing the complexity of what is rather than coming out or to people with the simple answers that we may have. And maybe that's uh, that's where Team Human is going to be taking us, <laughs> going to be taking me and us for this next while. And we will uh, we will see what happens. But thank you. Thank you all for hanging in there to our our listening audience. If you want to participate in one of these Team Human salons on Discord, just join Team Human. Till the end of August, you can join Team Human for two bucks a month. After that, um, you're no longer one of the first seven years of members, and the special charter membership will uh, tier will go away for new members. Um, everyone else who's in it too, you can stay it too. But from then on, it's going to be a big five bucks a month to uh, be a full supporting member of the team. Thank you all. Thank you all for supporting Team Human. Thank you for being here now. And um, it's all good. All right. You'll hear me next week, but I'll see you next month. Take care. And thank you for being on Team Human. We'll be back next week. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.